Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Do you remember that episode of Mr. Rogers, where he goes into the crayon factory and we see all the crayons getting made? Wonderful. Genius. While I would not claim the genius of Fred Rogers, call me biased, but I think today's episode of the Living Church Podcast is kind of like that episode of Mr. Rogers, because today we've pulled together six different guests to take us behind the scenes of the Living Church to the colorful variety of folks who influence our identity and our business operations. Today, we'll meet some people from our foundation, people who have a big impact on shaping TLC. Editor Mark Michael and I talk to our five newest foundation members. Now, if you want to see all the fascinating stories and delightfully varied backgrounds of this amazing group, you can go to livingchurch.org forward slash foundation, and you can find links to the bios of our guests today in the show notes. First, let's kick it off with a little history of the Living Church Foundation with our executive director, Dr. Christopher Wells. Dr. Christopher Wells, hello. <laughs> hello, Amber. Hi, I guess I can call you Christopher because that's what I normally call you. Yeah, I should have called you Miss Noel or Miss Amber Noel. I know that you love breaking things down. You love explaining history, things of that nature. So <laughs> I have a couple questions for you you're going to love. Okay, now the Living Church is called the Living Church Foundation. Yes, ma'am. So first question, when did the Living Church magazine become a foundation? And why did that happen? That's a great question. The magazine was founded in 1878. The Morehouse family bought the magazine in 1900. 
and they were the Morehouse Publishing Company in Milwaukee. And they edited the magazine, a father and then son, Frederick Cook Morehouse, for 30 years, and then Clifford Morehouse for 20 years. No, Frederick Cook for 32 to 1932. And then Clifford, and then uh, he stopped editing it in 52. And I believe the Morehouse Publishing Company moved at that point out to New York City. Um, and that's when the Living Church became separate from Morehouse. And at that point, the Living Church Foundation incorporated. So at that point, when it incorporated, was it at that point more than a magazine? What Were they doing more than publishing a magazine? Um, you know, true. to be honest with you, Amber, from the very beginning, it was more than a magazine. Because we originally, the Morehouse has published multiple magazines. They, had, they published children's literature. Um, throughout the first half of the 20th century, they published books. They founded, you know, what, what we know as the Red Book, the church annual, was the Living Church Annual. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So long history of publishing lots of different kinds of things. Now, I don't know about like conferences and that kind of stuff like we're doing now. Um, they probably but, weren't doing like Zoom, uh, <laughs> you know, webinars or those kinds yeah. of things. But, you know, they, they did charitable works, Amber. And it was a really neat thing that they did. Um, really throughout the 20s and 30s, at least, I'm not sure how long it went, they invited readers to send in money for charitable causes around the Anglican communion. So they always had a kind of global Anglican vision from, from day one, which is pretty, pretty cool. So from day one, they were sort of a, they were a magazine, but also the Living Church has been um, a clearinghouse mm-hmm. for the ga- the in-gathering of different kinds of things that are needed for the church, um, information, funds, um, curricula, different resources. And then Mm -hmm. the living church also helps figure out who needs these things, helps produce them and then helps get them out into the hands of people who need them. Yep. Yeah. Wow. But, but sort of, you know, the, uh, you know, the front, the front porch, the front door of the living church's ministry has always been the magazine, which people, you know, associate with with us and it's how we get the name the living church and so forth um and it's a wonderful name you know, it's simple it's biblical um it's memorable it know. is i have a hard time forgetting it yeah. um <laughs> <laughs> i can't tell you i have very really funny exchanges all the time i can't tell you how many i have with people who are definitely not episcopalian like you know like an like an evangelical or baptist taxi driver you know and they'll and they'll and they'll ask me what I do, and I'll say, "Well, I edit a Christian magazine." And they're like, "That's wonderful." And I say, "They say, what's it called?" And I say, "The Living Church." And they, I like ninety percent of the time, they go, "Oh, I've heard of that." Uh-huh. And it's like, "No, you haven't." <laughs> <laughs> but what they're thinking of is, you know, like living. Yeah, I mean, they're probably thinking of like the Living Word Fellowship, or you know, I mean, any number of churches that use the word "living," and of course, the word "church." You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Anyway, uh-huh. that was a very wise decision they made very early on. Even, <laughs> even the name itself is ecumenical in the extreme. <laughs> in the extreme, yeah. Uh, okay, my second question for you is about the foundation as a group of people. Uh, mm. Foundation is is the name of the organization, the Living Church Foundation, but the foundation as the group of people, uh, some of whom yeah. that, that we're going to hear from in a couple of minutes, what is yeah. what is their job? What, In other words, what does the foundation 
have to do with what a reader of the magazine or the blog or a listener to the podcast sees and hears from the living church? How does the work of the foundation affect the everyday ministry that we do? That's a great question. Um, and it's a pretty inspiring collocation of, uh, you know, collection gathering of um, leaders from around the Anglican communion. And we have a board, you know, a classic kind of board. It's like seven people, eight people who kind of, you know, oversees the affairs of the Living Church, you might say, but they're all members of the Living Church Foundation. And the Living Church Foundation is the kind of deeper governing body. Um, and they elect the board members out of their membership. Um, but, you know, really what it is, is we meet once a year, the annual meeting, as many people come as possible in person from around the world. We actually changed the bylaws of the Living Church about 10 years ago to make it international. And that was really because we realized that our mission was to be international and to speak to the whole Anglican communion and serve the Anglican communion and listen. But, you know, they're wise people. They're, they're, um, they advise me. They advocate for the Living Church's interest. They're, they're diverse. They represent lots of different perspectives. They, they're all across the church, churchmanship, as we used to say, church personship, you know, evangelical, Catholic. We've got some charismatics, I'm sure. Kind of, you know, classic kind of progressive, you might say, men, women, priests, clergy, lay people, business people, everything you would expect. And uh, it's one of the best parts of my job and I think our job to work with such a great group of people. Delighted to uh, interview one of our new foundation members, Heidi Kim. And Heidi, first, I wanted to ask, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where you, what you do, where you live, your family. Sure. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Heidi Kim, I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota with my husband and our dog, Taz. He's an eight-year-old Doberman rescue. Um, and I currently am serving as the director for the Melrose Family Center for Servant Leadership at the Breck School in Golden Valley, Minnesota, which is an Episcopal school, preschool through 12th grade. Wonderful. Did you grow up in the Episcopal Church? Uh, tell me a little bit about your religious roots. Yeah, you know, I did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. Um, I came to the Episcopal Church via the choir as a young adult. Um, I was a paid soprano section leader and hadn't really spent very much time in Episcopal churches, but just absolutely fell in love with the liturgy. Um, this was at St. John's Parish in Los Angeles, which is very, very, very high church. And I absolutely loved it. You know, I really love that Anglican choral tradition of which mm -hmm. I have been a mm -hmm. part, even when I was not attending churches. Um, but my mother, um, her grandfather was one of the first uh, Christian ministers who was ordained in South Korea. And so she actually came to the United States as an international student. And she ended up, uh, miraculously enough, in the early mid-50s, getting her MDiv from Union Theological Seminary in New York City um, as an international student. So I was raised by a theologian mother, even though we were not spending a lot of time in organized uh, institutional church. Have you had to describe your 
religious journey in three words, what would those words be? Uh, I would probably say nonlinear, inevitable, Mm. and life-saving. So you can see God's hand at work over time. Absolutely. But it's not been predictable. Absolutely. Which I think is as it should be. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. Tell me about um, how you got involved with the Living Church. Well, I've been reading articles in the Living Church for many years. um, And I remember when I was uh, serving on the presiding bishop staff for the Episcopal Church, I would be at executive council meetings and your reporters would be there. Um, But my friend and colleague, uh, the Reverend Canon, Mark Stevenson, who is the presiding bishop's canon, said, is this something that you would consider? And I thought, well, yes, of course I would consider it, but would they consider me? (laughs) Um, So it's really been an honor, um, just the the work of the Living Church and the the articles that have been shared and just this this ethos of one church uh, is very appealing to me. Um, And being amongst diverse, faithful others uh, and being able to talk about those things that we share in common is really inspiring. And I feel very, very grateful and very honored and humbled to be a part of it. Well, and we're delighted to have you as part of the team as well. Uh, we're asking all of our new foundation members for a, a big uh, futuristic projection. So a hundred years from now, what do you think the living church will look like? Or what kind of news of the church do you think we'll be covering? I would certainly hope that a hundred years from now, people in the church writ large are talking less about numbers and survival and really um, sharing the stories of how our lives have been transformed as followers of Jesus, as the people who are listening deeply for God's call uh, to us to live into who God wants us to be. And I think probably people of every generation are are hoping for that. But I, I'm always um, a little disappointed um, when, for example, the parochial reports come out and people kind of panic and sort of say, gosh, our numbers are going down. But the, the work of ministry, um, God's work in the world um, is, is abundant and ever present. And, you know, I hope that in 100 years we'll be less focused on the material aspects of our faith and really kind of focusing on our relationships with God and one another. Greetings. My name is Father Clint Wilson. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I am married to Teresa, my wife. She has a background in student leadership development, higher education. Perhaps more importantly, she's truly the the rock star of our ministry. Anyone who has met us will say that. We have a two and a half year old toddler tornado named James Benedict, and and we have a dog named Denver. We lived in Colorado for six and a half years. That's the name. Uh, Both of them love treats, by the way. And I am the rector of St. Francis in the Fields Episcopal Church in Harrods Creek, Kentucky, which is a suburb that is just northeast of Louisville. Father Clint, are you a cradle Anglican or a cradle Episcopalian? What are your religious roots? Well, I did not grow up in, in the Anglican or Episcopal tradition. I grew up in the Pentecostal church and I've always pointed out that 
that primed me towards Anglicanism and uh, kind of sacramental. Well, I mean, it, it, it helped my um, imagination, I, I think, over time open up to a sacramental worldview. I, I, was, I was steeped in the idea that if God is going to show up in charismatic ways, then God can show up in all sorts of other ways. Why not also in bread and wine? And so it, it kind of primed the pump for me to become Anglican. And, you know, the church I was raised in is reminiscent of, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Apostle. So my church wasn't quite that small, perhaps, but it, but it was it was a lively church. And so it embodied, you know, what Cramer would call a true and lively faith, to be sure, but certainly in a different way than he embodied. Um, it was actually, I think, one of the few racially integrated churches in Birmingham, which, of course, is a mm. hot seat of the civil rights movement. So. Mm-hmm. I grew up in this kind of multi-ethnic, economically diverse community, and, and that was actually the norm for me. Only later did I learn really that that was uncommon, at least in many church circles. But um, it was a rich experience in many ways. But obviously, at some point within my own story, I began longing for a greater sense of historical rootedness. And mm-hmm. of course, we've all heard that narrative before, and, and so I walked the Canterbury Trail. Yeah. Yeah. So you weren't an evangelical on the Canterbury trail. You were a Pentecostal on the Canterbury trail. Yeah, so you I were mean, making slightly more noise on the Canterbury trail than evangelicals. <laughs> that's slightly right. More clapping. Hands were raised on the Canterbury trail. <laughs> that's right. So if you had to describe this, um, spiritual religious journey, um, your own, your own journey in three words, what would they be? Well, yeah. You know, actually, I'm not sure that I can really improve on what the living church has done. I would say evangelical, Catholic, and ecumenical. So I, I you not, know, I was we did not ask him to say that, by the way. This I'm not getting paid. No one has sent me a check for this. Uh-uh, not yet. Um, this is genuine. And so, how and why did you get involved with the living church? It sounds like this was, in terms of mission, a really natural fit. But but how did you get involved? My wife and I met Christopher Wells when I was a seminarian at Neshota House, and I was doing an Anglican year there. And we quickly developed a, a life-giving friendship, and I you know, have a, an especially fond memory of eating delicious Polish food with him in Milwaukee or uh, drinking coffee on the shoreline of Lake Michigan. It was a, that's a fun city. That's a whole other podcast. Well, so Christopher invited me to a, a young leaders gathering in Dallas, and that was in some ways a forerunner to the group that has emerged, at least in its present iteration, is the Covenant Riders. And, and the rest is history. So um, I would say I'm involved because the, the Living Church has provided an intellectually rich and spiritually edifying community of colleagues who spur me on and, and provide just a, a great sense of encouragement for me and for my family. That just thrills me always to hear things like that from uh, a parish priest, that this is making a practical difference in your life. A hundred years from now, what will the living church look like or what news will it be covering? That's a difficult question, but I, I mean, will we be the United States of, of Amazon or Tesla at that point? Who knows? But um, okay. I, I imagine that, well, I would say on the one hand, I hope that that the living church will not look too different in terms of bearing witness to the faith once delivered to the saints and in terms of 
leadership development and providing great writing resources for lay people and clergy alike. On the other hand, I think that the Living Church is postured to have a more expansive ministry across the Anglican Communion and the broader church, other denominations. And I think its publishing ministry and media presence could grow extensively. Beyond that, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that I can forecast too much. Yeah, we, we may need to extend the, the leadership of, of the, the life of Christopher Wells. And, and, oh, oh, you mean like him. artificially extend yeah. <laughs> his life? Yeah, I'm not endorsing artificial intelligence. I'm just... Or a bionic, um, yeah. bionic, or the first bionic executive director of <laughs> the Living Church Foundation. That's right. We may need to start, you know, putting, working that into the job description. Bishop Sami Shahada, who is the, in the new province of Alexandria in the Anglican Communion. Um, Bishop Sami, could you tell me a little bit about um, you, your family, um, where, you, where you live, your home, um, and those sorts of things? Yes, thank you. Uh, great to be with you. and uh, It's a privilege for me to be part of uh, Living Church. I live in Alexandria. Uh, Alexandria is a big city. Uh, we are about six millions in Alexandria. And, uh, I've been married to Madeleine, my wife, since 1992. So we happily married for 29 years. We have two boys. Effie, my elder son, is 27. Romy, my younger son, is 26. Wonderful. And did you grow up within the... Anglican Church in Egypt or within a different religious tradition? Yes. Uh, I was actually raised as a child in the Anglican Church in Cairo. Uh, I lived there, and when I grew up, I served in a youth ministry for a few years. The Lord called me to start my theological studies. It was so clear a call uh, through the preaching and teaching in the Anglican Church uh, at the time, 1985 it was. And you were you taught theology for a number of years as well, right? Before you, you've only recently become a bishop. Yes, I'm the principal of the theological school. I finished my doctorate degree in 2001 in Birmingham in England. And uh, I returned back on 2001. Um, we founded the school in 2005, and I became the principal in 2012. So I teach history, and uh, it's a uh, wonderful young uh, generation, and they're so uh, excited about uh, learning. And uh, uh, we're doing very well, actually. And we started different branches, uh, not only in Alexandria and Cairo, in Upper Egypt and in Tunisia as well. So our main focus actually is the Arab world. And you're continuing uh, to teach within your ministry as bishop, right? Isn't this where the first uh, catechetical school was founded? Yes. <laughs> yes, Alexandria has a bright history in the early church fathers. I was speaking, your bishop, I was in a meeting with your bishop recently, and he, and he said uh, something like, um, 
in Alexandria, you know, we, we have learned that many things change over time. Uh, not long ago, we had this problem with Athanasius. <laughs> this, is, this is many, many centuries ago, but time moves slowly, perhaps, in your part of the world. So if you uh, had to describe your spiritual or religious journey in three words, what would they be? It has to be scriptures, grace, and prayer. Scriptures, grace, and prayer are deeply important for all who would grow in their life with Christ. Tell me about um, how you got involved with the Living Church. Yes, I received a message from Dr. Wills inviting me. Uh, of course, I heard about the Living Church through reading articles, but uh, I've never been able to really uh, look deep into the structure and the mission and the vision and I was so impressed, actually, looking at the history and the mission and vision of Living Church and uh, knowing that it goes back to uh, over 100, over 100 years. And amazingly, the, the mission of Living Church is orthodoxy and unity of the church, which we very much need today after 100 years. Well, 100 years from now... What do you think the Living Church will be looking like, or what kind of news will we be covering? What do you think the church will be like 100 years from now? Well, life changes very quickly. <laughs> so 100 years from today, uh, I imagine if 100 years ago uh, we were talking about orthodoxy and Christian unity, we'll still be talking about orthodox faith and Christian unity after 100 years, and then maybe more of the global south and how unite within the Anglican communion. Timeless themes, and, uh, but hopefully with Christ's help will grow. I'm 35 years old, and getting an Easter basket from my parents is not a problem. Once they realized I'm no longer into jelly beans and more into, like, Ferro Rocher we have had a good understanding. This is part of our celebration of Easter and one of the things that we share as a family. And today I want to encourage you to think about your family of faith at Easter time, especially in the Anglican communion and consider an Easter gift to the living church. We are a nonprofit ministry and we rely on donations to continue bringing irenic and incisive journalism, theology, book and art reviews, cultural analysis, and perhaps most importantly, learning and relationship-building opportunities for clergy and lay leaders in a uniquely Catholic, evangelical, and ecumenical way. To support what we do, go to livingchurch.org forward slash donate and give now, or go there to learn about creative giving options like gifts of stock and bequests. We are not picky about what you decide to put in our Easter basket, and we are so grateful to you for considering a gift. Again, that's livingchurch.org forward slash donate, or click the link in the show notes. My name is Paul Zahl, spelled Z-A-H-L, which I've had to spell all my life. And I am, uh, my proper title is the very Reverend Dr. Theol, Paul F.M. Zahl, absurd, but that's what it is. And I um, uh, am a retired Episcopal minister living in central Florida in a small but rapidly developing town called Winter Garden. I have a wife of 47 years, three um, adult sons, all of whom are in full-time 
Christian ministry, and we have seven grandchildren. Wow. What is it that you do these days? Are you fully retired? Well, I um, am, am, am fully retired in the formal sense, yes, uh, uh, but I um, record a uh, podcast of which I have just uh, recorded last week the 315th edition known as PZ's Podcast, and it is on the Mockingbird platform. And I also write a uh, column on movies, and I'm also uh, a member of... Uh, uh, formally speaking, as my wife is, really, of All Saints Episcopal Church in Winter Park. And I'm also uh, involved in a number of faith communities right here in Central Florida. So you are a model um, of the fact that retired does not mean retiring. <laughs> well, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, yes, I'm still very much involved in ministry. I I do a lot of counseling. I was the um, dean president of Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry in Ambridge, PA. Father Paul, are you a cradle Anglican or Episcopalian? What are your religious roots? I was baptized as a baby in the Episcopal Church, and my mother was an Episcopalian. My father was an agnostic, although he was the son of a Lutheran minister. Um, But then um, I spent about 10 years when my mother uh, became a Christian scientist as a little boy. I went with her to the Christian Science Church for till I was about uh, nine. And then I uh, entered an Episcopalian prep school I um, had the strong Episcopalian schooling and nurture was confirmed and so forth and so on. But then when I was at Harvard Law School, I had an overnight um, uh, conversion experience. Uh, And all of a sudden, I found myself very gratefully in the midst of an evangelical Church of England seminary in Nottingham, England. And that's probably where the deepest formation of my own um, kind of spiritual approach to ministry really took place. Mm. So now, Father Paul, how and why did you get involved with the living church specifically? Well, uh, coming along in the church over the years in the Boone Porter days, whom I knew not well, but a little bit, um, I always associated the living church with a kind of traditional Anglo-Catholicism, which I admired. I certainly would never have unchurched it and often had very, very close friends in the ministry of in the clergy who were um, Anglo-Catholics of a traditional sort, especially in New York diocese. Um, I always associated the Living Church, i.e. the Living Church Foundation, with um, a certain very sort of conservative uh, Anglo-Catholicism, but it did. This We're talking about 40 years ago, 30 years ago. And more recently, however, given the concatenations and the convulsions that our own communion and certainly our own denomination in this country have experienced, the Living Church has remained true to its core traditional Christian and, in the best sense of the word, Catholic roots, while also having a real openness to those who might call themselves evangelicals or charismatics, but who were, who were aligned in a traditional biblical prayer book faith. And it, it provided a kind of broad home, does provide, for I would call it Christians of a traditional conviction uh, within the denomination. And so I regard the living church as a kind of safe haven, if I may put it that way, or, or simply a, a lovely island where... Um, where Christian faith and its orthodox variant within the Episcopal Church is honored and appreciated and, uh, and really um, drawn ironically to a place of favor. So a hundred years from now, what do you think the living church will look like or what 
news will the Living Church be covering? Well, that's a very challenging question, actually, Amber, because a um, hundred years is a long time. So the real question to me is, will the church, as we have come to know it, at least institutionally, will it be around in its institutional form? But will the visible church actually, as we have known it in the Episcopal setting, be present at that time? Because there's nothing to say it will. Having said that, the positive side of my answer is that the Church of God, the Ecclesia Christi, will in fact perjure, and I believe it will always perjure, and perhaps by that time um, Christ will have come again and uh, it'll be established in a new sense, in the new heaven and the new earth. Let me say that the living church as an institution and as a magazine, as a journal, um, will do everything it can to support the true living church. And it's very possible that there will be a living church a foundation and magazine, but it may um, be describing something that looks quite different from what we see now. But whether the institution we cover will survive, I think it's an open question. And certainly we, we want to do all we can to ultimately renew, restore, and rebuild the church so that it is as beautiful and marvelous as it has been at points in our history. Hmm. So it sounds like um, I'll only really be for sure out of a job if the Lord returns. <laughs> well, I think you said it beautifully. I think you said it just perfectly. My name is Colin Ambrose. I'm currently the priest in charge at St. George's Episcopal Church in Nashville and, and have been in Nashville not, not too long, about a, a year and a half. Um, grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, have um, lived around the country, uh, but most recently moved up from a small smaller town, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Married uh, to my wife, Tricia. We've been married almost 20 years. We've got three uh, children, a daughter, Clara, who is 15. Uh, my son is 13. Uh, his name is Henry, and our youngest, Adele, is 11. So uh, uh, a busy busy and active and um, fun family life. And we have, our, we have a COVID puppy, a little uh, Brittany named Bo. Yeah, our children have been asking for a puppy for years, and um, we, we finally broke down in the pandemic. Now, are you a cradle Anglican or cradle Episcopalian? What are your religious roots? I'm a cradle Episcopalian, was baptized few months old at St. John's Cathedral in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, confirmed when I was 12. Uh, although in high school and in college, I left the Episcopal Church and started to attend the Presbyterian Church in America, so PCA, and um, spent about eight years, very formative years there, uh, theologically formative for me. But my first job out of college was up in New York, uh, working as a banker. And I remember a uh, spring night, my first year up there, I wandered into St. James Episcopal Church up on Madison and between 71st and 72nd and um, participated in a Eucharistic liturgy. It was, a, I think, a 5 p.m. Sunday night service, uh, just a few people, probably 15 and I, I left uh, deeply moved and overwhelmed by uh, that service and by encountering the liturgy, uh, which obviously I had been formed within as a young child. But 
found myself returning every Sunday night to St. James and since then have, have remained uh, in the Episcopal Church. So if you had to describe this journey of your, your spiritual, your religious life, what in, in three words, what would those words be? So if I had to choose three, I'd say first, the first word would be surprising. Um, the, the surprising in terms of the, the path that God has led me down, in, including the call to ordain ministry. The, you know, the second word, I would say it's been a long road of surrendering. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite quotes is by Chambers, Oswald Chambers, when he says, in our abandonment, we give ourselves over to the God who gave himself for us without any calculations. Um, and then um, the third word I would use is faithful. I would say I am continually surprised that God is there to direct and provide for us when when he needs to. I agree. Um, now, how and why did you get involved with the Living Church? Well, I'd say I've, I've been a reader of the Living Church for for some time now, and always been been grateful for the work of the Living Church. I mean, one of the things that I've come to really appreciate about the Living Church is that I, I think in our time right now, it is probably the most effective instrument of unity within the Episcopal Church. And, you know, especially with the Covenant blog, I think the most effective way of gathering and forming leaders in the, in the Episcopal Church. You know, and it, and it forms leaders by being the most accessible and at the same time, the most theologically rigorous publication that, that we have. So when you are reading the magazine 100 years from now, or you're reading the blog 100 years from now, what news will the Living Church be covering? Okay. Yeah, a, a very, I'd say, um, very difficult question to answer after a year like this in which <laughs> right. uh, even 12 months is hard to, to plan for. But I, I would say my hope, my greatest hope, is that the Living Church a hundred years from now, we'll be able to look back and say, look at how the Living Church helped to foster renewal and growth in the Episcopal Church, which we know needs renewal and growth. Uh, so I, I, to me, my greatest hope is just to be able to look back and see the impact of the Living Church. Again, that we see growth and renewal in the Episcopal Church a hundred years from now. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you want to support the podcast, support the Living Church by going to livingchurch.org forward slash donate. Now, if you heard today's ad, you already know that I'm way into Easter baskets. And next up on the podcast, we have Classic Texts, Easter Basket Edition. We'll welcome poet Malcolm Geit, presiding Bishop Michael Curry, Rowan and Jane Williams, Catherine Sonderegger, and other special guests as they read favorite texts that celebrate the resurrection. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.